Jonah chapter 3, looking at Jonah chapter 3 and verses 1 to 5. Let me read this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us as we Look at this passage, this narrative in the life of Jonah the prophet and how you used him. More importantly, how you saved a city of wicked sinners. Lord, help us to grow in our understanding of your character, your power, your providence through this passage and that we may apply those lessons to our lives. Please speak through me, that your people may be built up, and your name be lifted high. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just to recap where we've been in this series uh, through the book of Jonah, I had six messages, and uh, started off with an introduction and an overview of the book, and then We looked at God's call to Jonah in uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, and then Jonah's response to God's call and him fleeing from um, God's call to go to Nineveh in chapter 1, verse 3, and then God's response to Jonah's disobedience as he um, disciplined him in various ways in um, chapter 1, 4 to 17, and then... um, Last time, a couple weeks ago, uh, we looked at Jonah's repentance in chapter 2, and now we look at uh, Jonah's obedience. Jonah obeys, um, and his recommission, and his restoration, and uh, it's interesting that um, just looking at his restoration, his recommissioning, um, starting back out where he um, began... Um, the way he was supposed to go, and just looking at, you know, my life and the lives of others who have made mistakes or um, blunders or uh, just in um, finding your way in life and the course corrections that can happen, that can take place. And it's interesting because a, a course correction later in life is always harder and wastes more time, energy, and resources than just doing the right thing from the get-go, than obedience, diligence, and faithfulness from the beginning. And, and this not only reminds me of, of several instances in my own life and hearing testimonies of others, but of the Israelites in the wilderness and their sentence to wander for 40 years. And uh, just turn with me for a moment to um, Numbers chapter 13. And uh, we can see this, look a little bit more closely at this and just be reminded. Because as we saw earlier in in our um, study of this series, that a a big part of the book of Jonah and uh, his his, um, ministry, his calling, um, all the events that God would uh, do through him, all the circumstances, the um, actions, how he would um, save Nineveh at that time. Um, it's it's a in a in a way a picture of Israel and their disobedience. But in in Numbers um, chapter thirteen and twenty four, um, it talks about how um, the people came back from spying out the land. And they come back. Uh, Moses had sent um, early on after um, they 
left Egypt, uh, Moses sends uh, 12, 12 men to spy out the land, one from each tribe, and um, they return. It says, actually, verse 25 of chapter 13, it says, At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And we can see how that, in a way, parallels um, Jonah's call. That he went in the exact opposite direction of where he was supposed to go. To go to Nineveh, this great, um, exceeding city, the, the, the capital of um, the empire of Assyria at the time. They're um, Israel's enemies. Um, uh, people that were notorious for their... Um, their savagery and war and their evil and what they would do to their enemies and their, how they would conquer them and, and utterly destroy them. And uh, so certainly there was great fear on the part of Jonah in going to Nineveh, but there was also um, the sense that he despised them. And we would see that later that um, there was this uh, partiality, this racism in Jonah's heart against um, the Assyrians and the Ninevites. And so not only was he scared, but he, he didn't want to go at all. And uh, so he turned and he went the other way. And uh, then God had to discipline him. And, and like the Israelites, it's interesting because here in this, this um, narrative concerning the Israelites in the wilderness, um, where they were at, at that time in the wilderness, was roughly about anywhere from 10 days to two weeks to go into um, the promised land. Um, they weren't that far. Um, yet, because of their disobedience, because of their lack of faith, because of their fear, they spent 40 years wandering the wilderness. So, they, they, they could have on one hand, they could have believed God, accepted God's call, and went into the promised land 10, 14 days. Or, what they rather did is they were scared, they didn't believe God, and so they were almost tempted to return back to Egypt, back into slavery from where they came, and so God made them spend 40 years. So, you know, 10 to 14 days, 40 years. <laughs> you know, so it, it's, that's where fear, faithlessness, disobedience leads you. And uh, there's probably many, 
many um, illustrations within our own lives. Um, if we look hard enough or in the lives of others, um, sometimes we hear testimonies. And this is essentially um, part of what happened to Jonah. But now he repented and he's back on track. Um, and he receives God's call again, his restoration, his grace, his um, recommissioning to go back to Nineveh. Uh, not back to, but initially to um, go. And, and in this passage, immediately following Jonah's repentance, we see four actions from the perspective of Jonah concerning his restoration to the office of a prophet and his calling to go to Nineveh. First, we see that Jonah receives God's commands, verses 1 to 2. Then we see that Jonah takes initiative to carry out God's commands in verse 3. And then Jonah will execute God's commands in verse 4. And then Jonah will witness God's work through him in verse 5. But first, Jonah receives God's commands. And in receiving God's commands, there's really three parts of that receiving, um, that, that calling that God had to repeat the call, to repeat the command to Jonah. He did receive it, but in receiving it, um, there's indications that first and foremost, Jonah received God's pardon. He received God's pardon for his sin. He, he received full pardon because his repentance was genuine in chapter 2. He genuinely repented from his disobedience, from his sinfulness, so that he says in chapter 2, verse Nine, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And where there is uh, great repentance, there is great pardon. There is great grace. There is great forgiveness. That, that God will separate our sins as, from us as far as the east is from the west. And he will remove our sins far from us. And uh, in, in studying this passage, um, I came across, um, cro- across a, a lengthy um, quote by um, the Puritan Matthew Henry. In his commentary on this passage, he writes this. By this, it appears that God was perfectly reconciled to Jonah, that he employed him again in his service, and the commission anew given him was an evidence of the remission of his former disobedience. Among men, it has, just, it has been justly pleaded that the giving of a commission to a criminal convicted is equivalent to a pardon. So it was with, to Jonah. One would have expected that though his life was spared, yet he would be laid under a disability and incapacity ever to serve again in the character of a prophet. But behold, the word of the Lord comes to him again to show that when God forgives, he forgets. And whom he forgives, he gives a new heart and a new spirit to. He receives those into his family again and restores them to their former estate that had been prodigal children and disobedient servants. Note, God's making use of us is the best evidence of his being at peace with us. Hereby it will appear that our sins are pardoned and we have the goodwill of God towards us. Does his good word come unto us? And do we experience his good work in us? If so, we have reason to admire the riches of free grace and to own our obligations to the Lord Jesus. And so what he's saying is the fact that, that God recommissions Jonah and restores him, it, it, it's not as if uh, God is an angry parent at a, a petulant and disobedient child that, you know, after... He disciplines a child for not cleaning his room, says, now go clean your room. No, God totally restores him, totally pardons him, sets him back on that course again and restores him. The relationship is restored. Now, now certainly God knows what would happen later on um, as in, in Jonah's heart, in his response, in his pouting, um, but the relationship is restored. And God uses Jonah again. Yes, his, 
His disobedience was great. His sin was great in denying that call, but his pardon is just as great. And so in receiving God's commands, Jonah received God's pardon. And then second, Jonah received God's grace. He received God's grace because as Matthew Henry wrote, that um, we would expect that Jonah would be sidelined, that, that he, would, he would go off on the sidelines, that he would, in a sense, sit the bench, that he would sit out the game, that, okay, Jonah, you had your shot and you blew it. I'll send somebody else. But no, um, because it's ultimately not about Jonah. It's about God. As we have seen before, that this book, though Jonah is the main character um, that we can see, it's ultimately about God. It's about His grace. It's about His character. It's about His mercy, about His goodness, about His faithfulness, His steadfast love that He will use whomever He chooses to save whomever He chooses, and whom He chooses to save, He displays great mercy in saving them and showing Him grace. And this grace is not just evidenced in saving grace. You know, for us, from our perspective, we think of grace as saving grace. But grace is also shown in our works. And probably the, the, you know, one of the most quintessential passages concerning salvation and, and salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, um, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Then Paul goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So grace is not just experienced in salvation, but in the calling of God, the, the calling and the gifting of God that he gives us these spiritual gifts to work out. He, he provides um, opportunities to um, exercise those spiritual gifts. He prepares these works beforehand that we should walk in them. So the grace is not just in the salvation, but in our sanctification, in working out our salvation as we do works unto God that we are called into the service of God. And so Jonah didn't just receive uh, grace and God's pardon and his forgiveness, but he received God's grace in his restoration to the office of a prophet and the calling of a prophet to, um, to carry out these duties of a prophet, that he would be used of God again. So Jonah receives God's grace, and he also, thirdly, he receives his calling. He receives God's calling. Um, and in one of the study Bibles I was looking at to um, study for this passage, uh, the ESV study Bible, which is really extensive, there's a note on this passage in chapter 3. It says that um, Jonah's recommissioning and his compliance and and the, this episode parallels the first in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. It, it's almost exactly the same. That the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But here in chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, it says, um, Call out against it the message that I tell you. That's the the difference. And in the ESV study Bible, it says here, the second time underscores God's determination to get his message to the Ninevites and to use Jonah in the process. The message that I tell you replaces for their evil has come up before me. He's going to give him a message, a message to take to the Ninevites, not, not just go because they're evil. But go, I have this specific message, this particular uh, message which I want you to say to them. This message of grace, this message of judgment, this message of turn and be forgiven. 
And so, first, in, in Jonah's restoration, we see that Jonah receives God's commands and, and all that that implies. God's pardon, God's grace, God's calling. And second, we see that Jonah takes the initiative to carry out God's commands. In verse 3, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. He arose. Two, two actions here. Jonah arose and then he went. He arose. He, and this wasn't implying that he was lying down, that he was sleeping, that you know, right after the fish spit him out, that he was just so exhausted and so worn out, um, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally, that he just lied down on the beach there. Um, no, that, it's not implying that. This term is used to um, signify a preparation. That Jonah rose up, he prepared himself. Um, in, in other passages throughout the Bible, and, and in that culture of, of Israel and the, the ancient Near East, um, they, they would use the term to gird up your loins. To gird up your loins for work. To prepare for work. To get ready. He wasn't lying down, but this signifies that he made the preparations for this journey and this task, this ministry, this calling that he was given once again to carry out. And, and he had to make preparations because wherever he was spit out, we don't know exactly, but from Jerusalem to Nineveh, depending on which way he would travel, which roads he would take, would be about a five to six hundred mile journey. And, and chances are, yeah, the, the, the fish could have, God could have had the fish spit him out a little bit more north uh, along the border of Lebanon or, you know, up there where the, the journey was shorter. But even, even up there, it would still be Two, three hundred miles, who knows? It's still a journey. It's still a journey that would require provisions. It, it, it might require um, an animal, a donkey or a camel or, or, or what have you. It might require a, a, a band of travelers to go with or traders. Whatever the case may be, he had to make preparations for this journey. That was part of his calling. That, um, you know, as God calls him, he doesn't just leave. But he, he understands, he, he, he weighs the, he counts the cost, he weighs the decisions, the task that is set before him, and, and he makes provisions for that task. So he arose. And, and it's, it's interesting, uh, because that, that's the first indication that uh, his repentance is true, because repentance isn't fully uh, formed or fully realized until obedience starts. Uh, this principle that we find in Ephesians and Colossians, a put-off, put-on principle, um, is very, uh, very instrumental in our sanctification. That we, we don't just turn from sin, we turn to obedience. We don't just put off sin, we put on righteousness. And, and as uh, many of my uh, professors and preachers and, and former pastors have said, you know, concerning the put off, put on principle, they say, you know, uh, when is a thief no longer a thief? Is it when they stop stealing? No, it, it, it's not when they stop stealing, it's when they start giving and start providing. When is a liar no longer a liar? When they stop telling lies? No, it's when they start telling the truth. That that repentance is fully realized when the obedience starts. And this is what is happening in the life of Jonah, that he's beginning to obey. He repented, and his repentance is, is now fully forming into um, bearing fruits in keeping with his repentance. John Calvin, in his commentary, he writes this. He says, The command now follows. Arise, go to Nineveh, to that great city, and preach there the preaching which I command thee. God again repeats what we have observed at the beginning, that Nineveh was a great city, 
that Jonah might provide himself with an invincible courage of mind and come there well prepared. For it often happens that when that many boldly undertake an office but soon fail because difficulties had not been sufficiently foreseen by them. Hence, when men find more hardships than they thought of at the beginning, they nearly faint, at least they despond. The Lord therefore expressly foretold Jonah how difficult would be his employment, as though he said, I send thee a man unknown and of no rank and a stranger to denounce ruin on men, not a few in number, but on a vast multitude, and to carry on a contest with the noblest city, and so populous that it may seem to be a region of itself. We now then understand why this character of the city was added. It was that Jonah might gird up himself for the contest, that he might not afterwards fail in the middle of his course. This fear indeed frightened him at the beginning so that he shunned the call of God. But he is not now moved in any degree by the greatness of the city, but resolutely follows where the Lord leads. We hence see that faith, when once it, once it gains the ascendancy in our hearts, surmounts all obstacles and despises all the greatness of the world. It was part of God's discipline, part of his process of restoration and bringing about the repentance of Jonah and his repentance and the way that God called him back into obedience that, in a sense, strengthens Jonah. Because it showed Jonah the great lengths to which God would go to restore his sinning prophet. And that, as we had learned later in the New Testament, that discipline is evidence of God's love. And so this discipline not only brought about repentance in Jonah, but it brought about great faith. That, that Jonah now believed God and that be, he, he believed that God would use him and that God would be with him and that God would equip him so that he could face this insurmountable um, challenge to preach to these evil, wicked people who were the enemy of Israel. And so Jonah arose and then Jonah went. And he went to this exceedingly great city. As one commentator writes about this, he says, a visit required three days. That phrase it, that the Hebrew says, it, it, it literally says a distance of three days. Um, and he goes on to write, this could mean that it took three days to go either across it or around it, but it certainly does not mean what the English rendering might be taken to imply that it would take three days to visit every part of it. Diodorus Siculus, uh, from the first century B.C., gave the circumference of the city as approximately 60 miles. And thus many have man maintained that three days referred to the journey around the walls. Modern archaeology has shown, however, that the inner wall had a length of almost eight miles. Today, defenders of the historicity of the book interpret the statement as referring to greater Nineveh, i.e. the administrative district of Nineveh, which Parrot calls the Assyrian Triangle. This interpretation receives strong support from Genesis 10, 11 to 12, where that is the great city seems to refer to the whole area covered by Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Rezin. You know, what he's saying, the, the, the sum of this, is that it, it's not just the city proper, but the whole region per se. That, that this was um, not just the fortified walls and everything within the downtown metropolis area, the fortifications, but the towns and the villages and the farmlands outside of that city. That, that whole area that could be encompassed as Nineveh. That it would take him three days to go about and preach from street to street and, and market square to market square and uh, from, uh, from the center of towns to houses to the, the greater buildings. Um, it would take him three days. But he went nonetheless. And, and it's interesting because in, in these two 
verbs that Jonah arose and went shows that faithful ministry requires faithful preparation for ministry. That he had to prepare himself. He had to gird up his loins and and everything that came with um, preparing for this journey to Nineveh. But then he also had to go. And so faithful ministry requires faithful preparation for ministry. But here's the thing that we would see later, that fruitful ministry requires God's power to work through willing ministers. And so we see that Jonah first receives God's commands. Jonah then takes initiative to carry out God's commands. And third, Jonah executes God's commands. Verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. He, he was, as it said, it, the city would take, it was three days' journey in breadth, three days' journey to go about and to complete the, the preaching ministry, but it only took a, a day of Jonah preaching before they repented. And in executing God's commands, we we see that first and foremost, Jonah followed God's instructions. He followed God's instructions. And, And sometimes, that's just the bottom line of our obedience, of our faithfulness, is just simply to follow God's instructions, just to simply do what he tells us. But sometimes we have excuses. Sometimes we think of better ways. And it reminds me of that narrative in the life of Samuel and Saul, when Saul disobeyed God's clear instructions. In 1 Samuel 15, um, after Saul um, thought that he had a better way, Samuel comes to him. Um, Saul was supposed to hack the king Agag to pieces. Um, he was supposed to destroy the, these, these people, and Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Saul thought that he would um, keep these animals alive and keep Agag alive, and um, he, he, he had a better plan. But Samuel said, no, you had clear instructions. All you had to do was follow those instructions. And so then Samuel had to go and hack Agag to pieces. But that's simply what Jonah does here, that he followed God's instructions. And, and later on in this book, we will see that his heart really wasn't engaged. Um, there was still um, parts in his heart that were, weren't all in, but yet he followed God's instructions. Second, he engaged the enemies of God. He engaged the enemies of God. Um, John Calvin, again, he writes this. He says, Hence Jonah came and began to enter the city and to preach on the first day. This promptness proves clearly how tractable Jonah had become and how much he endeavored to obey God in discharging his office. For had there been still a timidity in his heart, he would have inspected the city as careful and timid men are wont to do, who inquire what is the condition of the place, what are the dispositions of the people, and which is the easiest access to them, and what is the best way, and where is the least danger. If Jonah then had been still entangled by carnal thoughts, he would have waited two or three days and then have begun to exercise his office as a prophet. This he did not, but entered the city and cried out against it. He's saying, like, Jonah, in a sense, could have done what Saul did. And could have been like, you know what? Um, This is a big task. These are evil people. Um, This is a huge city. Maybe I should, you know, scout out around it, go walk around just to check out what's the easiest route. And, and, and he could 
even um, justify that to himself by saying, you know, maybe I'll go where the most people are. Um, where, where do, the, where do this, these people, where does this city receive um, ambassadors? What's, what's the best place to go? What's the most direct route to the king? Um, no, he didn't explain that away at all. He just went. He just went and he went into the city, whatever was the most direct route. He went, he followed God's instruction. He engaged the enemies of God, which is, they were God's enemies. And, and Jonah had a message to proclaim God's judgment. So in executing God's commands, he, he first followed God's instructions. Then he engaged the enemies of God. And then he proclaimed the word of God. He did exactly what a prophet does. That, that's his one job. His one job, his sole mission in life as a prophet is to declare the word of God. To say, thus saith the Lord. That's, that's his sole purpose in life. And though he didn't do it at the start, he, he did have true repentance and he does it now. And, and this is... This is not only what a prophet does, but this, is, this commands it continues on to this day. This is what all preachers are to do. As Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter 2.15, he says, Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And even as, as Paul had to tell Titus these things, he had to use some strong language because... Within every preacher and, and surely every apostle and prophet, we can see that in the New Testament and the Old Testament, um, that everyone who is given the task to declare God's word is tempted to shrink back from that task. Because we're going to have to declare God's word to God's enemies and those who don't want to obey God's word. But this was part of Jonah's uh, repentance and his obedience, that his obedience um, was fully carried out because his repentance was true and he bore fruits in keeping with repentance, that he proclaimed the word of God to God's enemies. Matthew Henry again writes this. He says, when he came thither, he lost no time. He did not come to look about him, but applied closely to his work. And... When he began to enter into the city, he did not retire into an inn to refresh himself after his journey, but opened his commission immediately according to his instructions. And he cried and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This, no doubt, he had particular warrant and direction to say. Whether he enlarged upon this text, as is most probable, showing them the controversy God had with them, and how provoking their wickedness was, and what reason they had to expect destruction and give credit to this warning, or whether he only repeated those words again and again, is not certain. But this was the purport of his message. One, he must tell them that this great city shall be overthrown. He meant, and they understood him, that it should be overthrown, not by war, but by some immediate stroke from heaven either by an earthquake or by fire and brimstone as Sodom was. The wickedness of cities ripens them for destruction, and their great wealth and greatness cannot protect them from destruction when the measure of their iniquity is full and the measure of their vengeance has come. Great cities are easily overthrown when the great God comes to reckon with them. Two, he must tell them that it shall shortly be overthrown at the end of 40 days. It has a reprieve granted. So long God will wait to see if, upon this alarm given, they will humble themselves and amend their doings and so prevent the ruin threatened. See how slow God is to wrath. Though Nineveh's wickedness cried for vengeance, yet it shall be spared forty days, that it may have space to repent and meet God in the way of his judgments. But he will wait no longer, if in that time they turn not, they shall know that he has wet his sword and made it ready. He proclaimed this message. And, and it is clear, as, as Matthew Henry alludes to, um, that he went a day into the city proclaiming this word. And, and it is possible that he, he did just 
continue to repeat himself, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But more likely than not, he expounded upon that. As, you know, every preacher, you know, I say, you know, um, preachers like to ramble. <laughs> and prophets are, you know, their whole sole purpose is to speak. So certainly he expounded upon that message. He expounded upon the wrath of God, the justice of God, the holiness of God, and, and their own wickedness, and that they deserve that wrath. But yet, even within his message was the provision of God's mercy and his grace that they were given 40 days. 40 days. So Jonah receives God's commands. He executes God's commands. Um, and then now, Jonah will witness God's work through him. He will witness God's work through him. And first and foremost, in, in going into the city, in, in, in verse 5, it says that the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah witnesses God working through him, the, the, the disobedient prophet who has been restored, who has been recommissioned, who is, who is sent once again to proclaim this message that Jonah sees God working through him. And, and it's clearly God's work. Jonah knows this because first and foremost in, in, in him witnessing God's work through him, he witnesses them receiving him. He witnesses the Ninevites receiving him. It, he, initially, he probably had no idea. When he ran from God's call, he probably had no idea that, that they would actually receive him and receive God's message. It's part of the reason why he ran, not just his hatred for them, but his disbelief that they would even receive him him. And this is any of us who have evangelized, who have witnessed to others. This is within us as well. That a lot of times we just assume that people aren't going to believe us. They aren't going to receive us. They aren't going to receive God's message. But we're all here because we did. We all received his message. And yes, it is true that, that most people will not receive you. Most people will um, be indifferent to the gospel. Most people will um, have excuses. Some will even become hostile and fight you. And, and, and certainly, um, Jonah initially had this thought in his mind. But in returning and accepting God's call once again and being restored, he believed. But there is a sense that he was probably shocked as well to see that he was received. And, and that's a clear indication of God working through him that, oh my gosh, they actually believe me. <laughs> like, like these people, these wicked people actually believe me. A, a Hebrew, a, 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 a man from this nation that they're about to take over. They believe me. So he witnesses them receiving him Second, he witnesses them receive God's message. That it says, the people of Nineveh believed God. Not that they believed Jonah, but they believed God. They believed God and they knew that God had sent this man. That it wasn't this man's opinions, it wasn't his arguments, it wasn't even his hatred for them. Like, like some of us are... are or even people from other religions can, can often say to other peoples, God's going to strike you down. And, and they can, can say that out of hatred, out of, out of malice. Um, and more often than not, it's not true. But here, Jonah comes here, a stranger, an Israelite, and he says that. God will strike you down unless you repent. And they receive it. And said, okay, we believe you. And they repent. And so he witnesses them receiving him. He witnesses them receive God's message. And then he witnesses them respond to God's message. That their, their repentance, it, it wasn't just uh, uh, intellectual assent. It, it wasn't just 
Um, yes, you're a Hebrew, you're an Israelite, you, you, you look strange and you have a strange message and, and, and certainly um, your, your message may have some validity to it because we are wicked and evil people. Um, so yeah, we believe you, but no, they, they, their, their belief, their repentance bears fruit because they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They called for a fast. It wasn't just that, okay, I'm going to fast and put on sackcloth. It's like, hey, you, you better fast and put on sackcloth too. Um, and you, yeah, you, here's some extra sackcloth for you. We all need to repent. They all responded. So Jonah knew that it was God who worked through him and therefore could not and did not boast about any good that came about through his obedience. This is evident of his response to God's work later, which is really, you know, maybe the main reason why Jonah had the boldness and courage to obey in the first place. Because later on, we, we see um, after Jonah sees um, the full repentance and, and the word reaching the king of Nineveh and the whole city repenting, in, in chapter 4, it says this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So we, see, we, we see that there was still some sin in his heart, though he did repent. And then he says, he, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. There's a sense that Jonah knew this would happen. He knew if God went to such great lengths to call him and to discipline him and to restore him and to recommission him, then certainly God was going to use him. And so he carried out that duty, believing that God would use him. But then there's also a sense that there still may have been a little bit of a shock in the fact that that repentance was so great. But the bottom line here is that Jonah obeyed. He obeyed, even though he was still angry, even though there was still racism and animosity in his heart towards the Ninevites and towards the Assyrians, he still obeyed. And this is interesting because it comes down to these two aspects in our Christian life of one versus duty and desire, which are not at odds with one another. But sometimes when the desire is not there, we still need to carry out the duty. We still need to obey. And many times, oftentimes, we don't feel like obeying or carrying out the duty. But what do we do anyways? We obey. We carry out the duty. We do what we're called to do. And what's interesting here is, you know, most believers sincerely desire sinners to be saved. But yet we don't proclaim the gospel like we ought because we don't sincerely believe that they will be saved. However, Jonah sincerely believed that God would save the Ninevites, yet he did not sincerely desire them to be saved. He just preached out of sheer duty and obedience to God's command. And, and that was good. It would be better if his desire was there. Much better. And, and so, oftentimes, when we carry out the duties, our Christian duties, and our desire is not there, and it's good, we carry out those duties, but there is a sense that we still need to repent of our evil heart attitude. That... Our heart needs to be right as well. But it's, it's a both and, not an either or. But when our desire is not there, we, we need to just carry it out. And, and then this is interesting. It, it, it made me think of um, just preachers in general and, and ministers in general. And, and oftentimes in the Christian life, um, we can look, we can read about missionaries and great preachers and, and ministers and, and, and missionaries and, and even ones we know, and we can kind of put them up on a pedestal. 
and kind of say, you know what, they're, they're really living for God. But it, it reminds me of, you know, the, the, the seminary I went to, um, and many seminaries do this, is, you know, towards the end, they, they might have a testimony time. And I remember um, one of my friends who served in the military um, for 20 years and, and served faithfully, and, and he, he likened ministers and pastors to um, soldiers and Marines and, and people who joined the military that, you know, oftentimes, even in our own country, we can look at um, soldiers, and especially during wartime, and, and look up to them, and we thank them for their service, and that is good and right and true, but... Um, as my friend said, and as I've experienced myself, is that most military men, they're not your Rambo types. They're not the um, super soldiers. They're not these um, heroes that we see in the movies. They're just normal men who said, I'll go, and I will obey, and I will do my duty, and I will serve my country because my country needs me. And so they go. Yes, there are those Rambo types, but they're few and far between. And and just like ministers and missionaries and pastors, there's not a lot of Apostle Pauls and George Whitfields. They're just men who, you know what, I've been saved, and I've been saved by this gospel, and I need to go proclaim this gospel. And so, yes, there's not a whole lot of gifting in me. There's not... This high and this high intellect or this holy um, behavior and and character, but this message needs to be preached, and I will go. And that's a lot of times the bottom line is that we just need to go and obey, and we need to um, believe God enough to obey him in the hard things and in those hard tasks, that he will go with us if we follow him. He is always with us. In this bottom line of duty, even Christ lays this out for us. In Luke chapter 17, he says this, because there's no room for boasting. Whether we do our duty, whether we do great things, um, there's... No room for boasting ever because he gives us the gifts and he calls us to exercise those gifts. He gives us the opportunities to work out those gifts. And in Luke chapter 17, verse 7 to 10, it says this. Jesus says, Will any, of, any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly? And serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And God has given us all duties and responsibilities to carry out, to um, live in a way, uh, in a manner that's worthy of of our calling, of the Lord, of his name, to proclaim this gospel, to disciple, um, to make disciples of all the nations, to, uh, you know, um, carry out those specific commands for um, marriage and family and within the church and and to our neighbors, to um, people in authorities. Um, and, And so the primary lesson and application from this passage is the importance of obedience. Solomon, um, in, in his, you know, his writing, the book of Ecclesiastes, when, when he's at, towards the end of the, his life, he writes this book, and, and he surveys all of his, his life, and, and it's almost as if Solomon, the, the wisest man who ever lived and walked, he, he, he's in, in a sense saying, what's the meaning of it all? I've had all these great things, this great wisdom. I've done all these great things. I, 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 I haven't kept from myself any pleasure at all. I've, I've sought out what is best in life. And, and all I can say is vanity of vanities. And, and yet at the, at the end of that book, 
He says this, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He's saying, in a sense, like, God gave me the wisdom. God put me on the throne. God um, providentially gave me all these things. And and, and I, I, in a sense, wasted many of them seeking pleasure and seeking what is best in life. And and even when it's taken away from me, even when my life is end, who knows who will come after me and may waste all that I have built and, and done. But the end of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commandments, because that's why God has put us here, to do his works and and to let him um, decide where he would have us work. Jesus says in in John chapter 14, he says, um, verses 21 to 24, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. It says later on, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And that's the bottom line, that we keep God's words, we fear him, we carry out his commands. But we must remember that, yes, though this passage is primarily about obedience, um, But as with most of the Bible, the the book of Jonah is not primarily about Jonah, but about God, his character, his dealings with his people and the nations, and his providential plans to bring about his glory. That God, though he sent Jonah to the Ninevites to to preach this message of judgment, of, of destruction, he gave them 40 days to repent. He gave them this provision, this Provision to come to him, to return to him, to repent. He gave them time. As, as uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, he says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That God is displaying His grace in the life of Jonah, His grace and His mercy towards the Ninevites, His, even in a sense, His grace towards Israel, who does not deserve His grace, that He shows His grace to all peoples and gives them time to repent and sends them prophets and apostles and Christians to proclaim this gospel of repentance, of faith, of, of restoration, of redemption. And yet, as Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And we have a greater message than Jonah We have a much greater message, a message of grace, a message of full pardon, a message of new life in Christ, a message of eternal life, a message of heaven, a fuller revelation. We are called to do our duty and proclaim that message. And if we do our duty, God will use us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account in the life of Jonah And that it not only teaches us lessons of obedience and duty and faithfulness, but more importantly, it teaches us lessons of your grace, of your mercy, of your kindness, of your forgiveness, of the fact that you sent your son to seek and to save that which is lost. Lord, help us to take our calling seriously and to proclaim this message to the people around us, that we would not be disobedient in our calling, but that we would be faithful. And Lord, with our obedience, help us to um, have the right attitude, not to just serve.